Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. A warning before we begin. This podcast is explicit in every way. Last time on Louder Than a Riot. People were getting a little rowdier. And the next thing you know, it was like a pow. The person to be interviewed is uh, McKinley J. Phipps. What kind of performance do you do? I rap. You're a rap singer? Yeah. He should have never been involved or even considered as a suspect. They didn't want to listen. They just didn't want to hear. The defendant is named Mac the Camouflage Assassin. Slam dunk. I said, my son didn't do this. I kept screaming, my son didn't do this. I didn't believe in anything. I didn't believe in people no more. I didn't believe in the system anymore. I didn't believe in nothing. Everything was just dark. I'm sitting shotgun in D1's Honda, somewhere in Uptown, a section of New Orleans made famous by No Limit and Cash Money back in the day. And D, he's bumping his 2009 debut album when he stops to introduce track number five. This is the song I did about Mac. It's called Living Legend. And I was kind of rapping in a Mac cadence. So watch this. Yeah. I send this song out to a living legend. My big brother in battle, Mr. McKinley Phipps. The world knows him as Mac. Currently serving 30 years behind bars for a crime he did not commit. Check it out. Love. Love. Sometimes it's deeper than words. The law works in mysterious ways. D1. He met Mac for the first time in 2009. That's when D, who grew up reciting Mac's rhymes word for word, made a trip to Elaine Hunt Correctional Center, the same facility where Mac was incarcerated. D was there to perform at a prison ministry service he'd been invited to by former felon turned activist, author Silky Slim Reed. Right as we're going through the gates, checking in, uh, Silky Slim, he was sitting in the front passenger seat, and he looked back. I was in the back seat. He said, you know who locked up here, huh? And I said, who? Your boy Mac. And I was like, bro, I was like, you kidding me? I was like, oh, man, I wasn't ready for all this, bro. I'm about to meet Mac. Like, you got to be kidding me. And I'm just tripping out, man. I'm like... Oh, we talking Mac, we talking one of my favorite rappers. I go walk out in the courtyard where, where they had the inmates at right before we did this this performance. And I see Mac, you know, remind me of myself, bro. Tall, slim, left-handed. You know, these are all things we got in common. Uh, lyrical, New Orleans, dudes that grew up in the hood, but ain't, ain't, no, ain't no gangsters, you know what I'm saying? Like, exactly, in and out of it. Yeah, this is the same D1 who used his first big record advance to pay off his student loan debt to Sally Mae. Then, he made one of his biggest songs about it. And now I'm driving me back, but guess what I did? I finished paying Sally Mae back, Mae back. I finished paying Sally Mae back, Mae back. I finished paying Sally Mae back, stereotypical New Orleans rapper, he definitely ain't. I'm this positive dude. I'm this God-fearing dude who wants to put, you know, a, a message out there to be real, be righteous, and be relevant. Mac saw himself in D. More to the point, he saw the rapper he might have become had he stuck to the path less traveled. And to D's surprise, 
Mac had been keeping up with his career too. Their initial meeting that day turned into a mentorship. This one, me and Mac used to write letters back and forth a whole lot, you know what I'm saying? Before we got heavy on the, the phone and, 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 and in-person visits, it was a bunch of writing letters back and forth. At one time, Mac was teaching me how to play the keyboard and the piano mm-hmm. through letters that he was writing me from prison. He was drawing out all the keys on the, on the piano and on the keyboard and teaching me the major scales and the minor scales. Just to look back at those letters, it's just like you see the evolution of the relationship. When I tell you our relationship, it's just been pure as as water. It just pure, never felt like there was a, a forced moment. When they initially met, Dee's career was still in struggle mode. He met with a few labels, but nothing was sticking partially because of that squeaky clean image. When I met Mac, keep in mind, I wanted to be a rapper, but I was not a rapper. You know, I I had a nine to five. You know, that's your most desperate time when it's like, yo, I want this so bad that all these people in my ear telling me if I change and if I conform uh, and if I start being a little more street, a little more gangster, a little more edgy, a little more sexual, a little more vulgar or whatever, if they're telling me this, then, you know, maybe they know what they're talking about. But Mac was always like, no, you got it already. You you have it. Don't change. Just get better at what you already do. I met him right in that season of my life. Mac had already made the mistakes he was coaching D to avoid. Because remember, he traded his image back in the day for No Limit success. And it seemed like a small compromise at first, but it ended up costing him major. Here's Mac again from a prison phone call. When you're trying to make money doing something, you're going to try to cater to the most uh, lucrative market at that time. And at that time, No Limit was successful in selling rap. You have one minute left. That was, I would say, sexually driven, violently driven to a certain extent, and drug-related. And I didn't know too much about drugs because I never sold drugs. So I could relate the things that I've seen in my life and tell those stories in a way that will get that message across to uh, the listeners for the record sale. But the album Mac was working on by 2000, and it was going to be his last on No Limit. He was building a bridge between his past self and his future self, between No Limit Mac and the artist he'd been before the tank. He was going to call it One Love. But Mac, he didn't get to make that turn, because before he could make it right, Everything went left that night in Club Mercedes. And the price Max paid since? It's had a profound effect, even on his biggest fan. What, what do you think you learned from his career, either directly or indirectly, that, that, that shaped your, your, your career? That you can't outsmart the devil. Mac told me, you know, he said he tried to outsmart the devil. And he had this plan that, look, I know I could fit in with this brand, you know, and push out this style of hip-hop that's riddled with a lot of violence and just a lot of aggression. And he saw, like, really, this? Like, I could do this in my sleep, you know? It's not reflective of who I am, but this is easy. This actually causes me to dumb down my skill set. But I could do this if it's going to lead to this almighty dollar. Mac is, you know, constantly reminding me, like, Ultimately, you know, you 
you behave in a manner that's not uh, fitting to, to the person you are, eventually it's all going to catch up with you. You know what I'm saying? I'm what he was before he saw a need to try to outsmart the devil. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Sydney Madden. And from NPR Music, this is Louder Than a Riot. Where we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. In our final installment of Max's story, we're going to follow the ripples of the case over the past 20 years. We look at the status of things since that 2001 verdict. From the crimes committed by the lawmen who put Mac away, to a recent Supreme Court decision that has the potential to change everything. What do these new developments reveal about the long shadow of Louisiana law? And while Mac's family and supporters continue to wait, they wonder, what's it going to take for Mac to gain freedom? But first, was Mac's arrest part of a backlash to Black-owned hip-hop labels? We consider the evidence and ask, were the labels specifically targeted by law enforcement? Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy explains how Betterment's technology helps investors better understand and save on taxes. So taxes are a real cost of investing, as are fees. Understanding your after-tax, after-fee returns is really what's important for investors. An example would be when you buy and sell uh, securities frequently, you can pay a lot of taxes because short-term capital gains, meaning I bought it and I sold it fairly quickly, have higher taxes than long-term capital gains. Our technology in particular will tell you what the tax implication of a particular move you'd like to make is going to be before you make that move so that you're making it with full transparency. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Support for NPR and the following message come from Quantacy and Associates, a full-service creative agency and studio helping brands grow by pushing culture in the right direction while introducing a new era of thinking. With a business model designed to help companies excel, they specialize in melding the worlds of marketing, content, technology, and influence. Quantacy works with brands of all sizes, ranging from Fortune 100 clients, public figures, and small businesses. Find out more at Quantacy.com. One of the last joints Mac released as a No Limit artist was a song called Lockdown. I was on my way up state for felonies. Mac can never see the sunshine. These good old times is haunting me. My family's wanting me to break free. The song is about a man serving time for a crime he's been falsely convicted of. Instead, I'm in this pit over some shit I didn't commit. It was the niggas I was with, but I'm silent. It's funny how Lucifer can seduce you. You're so crazy. It was based on the dream I had. And I got up and I wrote the dream down and then I turned it into a rap. Just two years after releasing that song, Max started his 30-year prison sentence. And that dream, man, it turned into a living nightmare. Prison is kind of like a, a cold glass of water. It wakes you up quick as hell. It has been an adjustment. You know, in some ways it has, it has helped me mature a lot. And, you know, in other ways, I guess it, it kind of keeps you behind time. Mac Phipps wasn't the only No Limit artist that got caught up in the legal system. 
There's no limit records rules to fame, it's money, it's power, and success wasn't the only thing it was known for. In 1999, twin brothers Daniel and David Garcia, also known as No Limit Duo Kane and Abel, they copped a plea in a federal case that linked them to convicted New Orleans drug lord Richard Pena. The feds tried to get the brothers to flip on Master P, but they refused to cooperate, so Master P was never charged. Even still, he definitely felt the eyes of the law on his back. I was targeted, but after they realized, you know, every time I had an incident, I said, look, man, I know these people. Yes, I do. I grew up with them, but I don't do no business with them. They come from the same hood I come from, and I'm doing the right thing. While Master P avoided charges in that case, not everybody in his circle has been so lucky. Yeah, I mean, P's own brother, Corey better known as C-Murder, he got convicted for murder in a case that's so similar to Max, it's kind of uncanny. C was performing in a small club, and someone got killed. C got convicted for the crime by a non-unanimous jury. And just like Max's case, witnesses and C's, they've since recanted their testimony. Recently, celebrities like Kim Kardashian and Monica, C's one-time fiancé, they've all come forward to advocate for his freedom. Mac, on the other hand, his case has never quite gotten the same level of attention. I had a long conversation with Master P about profiling Mac's case and where he thinks the responsibility really lies. But before all that, he told me what motivated him to sign Mac in the first place and why he feels like Mac got handed a raw deal. Mac was probably one of the best artists ever came to No Limit. And... This guy, for us, was like our down south Nas. He was lyrical. He probably one of the nicest guys I ever met. So when I heard the news, what he was incarcerated for, it was a shocker. Like, this guy shouldn't be incarcerated. And I know that his music got him incarcerated, but they got the wrong guy. I mean, when you talk about assassin, we're talking about verbal assassin. We're talking about how he killed people with his lyrics. And I think... The system mixed that up with what he is as an entertainer. It seemed like Mac was starting to kind of change his style. And I know he was working on his last album on No Limit at the time that this happened. Had y'all talked about the direction he was he was trying to go go toward and and, and with his career? I was with Mac 100 percent, whatever he wanted to do. No Limit is like a university. You come, you graduate, you move on. That's what Snoop did. That's what all the stars did that was with No Limit. And I was happy for him. The only thing I, I told Mac, I said, you don't need to go to no club for $5,000 when he got millions of dollars in the bank. That was my last conversation with him. A hood club. When you make decisions in churches, you got to suffer the consequence, even if you're innocent. Think about it. Somebody lost their life in that club. Even in my brother's case, somebody lost their life in that club. And guess what? The, the bigger fish to catch is... Turning on the artist, turning on somebody that's talking about street stuff in their music. And you just guilty by your lyrics now. After his arrest, did, did, did y'all have any involvement or were you involved in this case early on on, on any level? No, because I told him. He'll tell you. I love him, but I told him. I say, if you get caught up in anything, then I'm not coming to see you. I'm not dealing with that. That's on you. And he was like, all right, boss, I'm, I'm, I'm gone. And that's, that's how it went. 
Is that because he was doing this club show that you didn't want him to do? Yes. And I told him that. Why was that so so important to you in terms of like, you know, not dealing with these hole-in-the-wall clubs and whatnot? What was the thing about that? Because my whole thing was safety, getting my people home to their families. We're one of the biggest companies in the world now. And you don't want to live in those same environments that you used to live in because you made it out. Why go backwards? Everybody that went in a club, a hole-in-the-wall club, now they fighting for their freedom. For no reason. And you got millions of dollars. I mean, you don't need to be there. This generation have to learn that keeping it real with my people. Keeping it real with what people? People that keep it real want to make it out the ghetto, feed their families, get a nice house, and live a nice life. And don't have to look over their shoulder and don't have to be worried when the police pull you over. We going backwards. We giving them a reason to play with our freedom and our lives. Both of these guys done lost 18 to 20 years away from their families. That means you ain't get a chance to raise your kids. You really ain't get a chance to enjoy the fruit of your labor that you worked so hard to make it out the ghetto. I'm not giving that up for nobody. Especially if I didn't commit a crime. Now remember, P had moved his whole operation to Baton Rouge to get away from the streets in New Orleans. But sometimes, as they say, more money, more problems. When you come out the ghetto and you make the type of money that No Limit made, then you will be stereotyped. But my goals, my dreams was bigger than the projects. And that's how I was able to survive. And you have to show people that you're not like everybody else. But when you start hanging around the wrong people, then you become a bigger target. And I just think that's what Mac got caught up at. That's where my brother got caught up at. They are victims of their environments because everybody wanna hang with you now. Good and bad people. And that's what my brother learned. That's what Mac learned in the end. They went to prison. So that's a harsh reality that we have to live with now. But you know, if it sounds like P is blaming Mac and his brother for being wrongfully convicted, you know, you got to remember where P came from, right? Mm. I mean, the Cali Hope was the most violent housing project in the city considered the most violent in the nation at the time. I mean, P lost his own brother to that violence. So for P, once you get out of that environment, going back is like risking it all for nothing. Despite the fact that No Limit was cooking up that raw, man, Master P saw that as a stepping stone to getting rich and respectable. And he expected everybody on the label to have that same mentality. Yeah, and this ain't a new tune for Master P. He's been on this for years. Yeah, because back in 2007, when Congress held hearings on the explicit language and violence portrayed in rap, man, P showed up sounding like he was ready to repent. My whole goal for being here is to preserve hip-hop. And I know this is a culture that involves, and, and I watched the first panel, we talked about uh, society. It's definitely a part of a problem from society, but we are inflaming this problem by not being responsible. And I want to take that responsibility. First, I want to tell everybody here that I was once part of the problem. And hopefully as I move on in life and I raise kids, I want to be a part of the solution. I and think the at the time, a lot of people were surprised at the tone that you struck. You know, you here you were, you know, the, the, the biggest hip hop label owner, independent of all time, uh, 
fans all over the, the country and the world you grew up on your music and in some ways it sounded like you were almost uh kind of had a, an apologetic tone about the kind of music that that you had made at, at no limit i was always curious about that what what kind of brought that on for you growth being a man being accountable for your actions and not being afraid to change and that we are going to and if we're going to be around we're going to be able to to open up business in corporate America and do other things, you're not going to just look at me as a hip-hop person. Before it's over, you're going to look at me as an entrepreneur, businessman, and a philanthropist. And we have to grow as people. Or they're going to always stereotype us. So I didn't mind sitting in front of them people and explaining to them who we are and what we are evolving into with education and, and God. Rodney, part of this feels like respectability politics. And the problem with respectability politics is that it reinforces that Black people aren't respected or worthy of respect in the first place. And in P's case, that the art of rap is something to apologize for, even though he got rich off it, you know? I'm not having that. See, I think for P, though, like he knew he couldn't change how the police or society viewed him, right? So the most he could do was change himself. Hmm. And the funny thing is, you know, Master P and Mac, they echo each other in some ways. I mean, they both talk about growth and freeing themselves from that no limit image. Okay, okay. But clearly there are definitely other hip hop moguls who felt like they were being targeted simply for representing the streets. I mean, in the late 90s and early 2000s, you had hip hop labels around the country that started catching heat from Death Row to Murder, Inc., yeah, even when a masterpiece's earliest mentors got caught up. I definitely don't feel that it was a coincidence that we all got hit around the same time. That's Jay Prince. Remember, he's the head of Rap A Lot Records in Houston. And he was also Masterpiece's early inspiration to move his whole label back to the South. And as Rap A Lot started to rise, Jay says it was the music that put him on law enforcement's radar. I started feeling it with my movement with the Ghetto Boys. They paint the portrait of a gang or some kind of negative movement. I drew more brothers from the streets. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, I'm building this movement, and that became a movement that was hated by law enforcement in Texas. In 1998, the DEA started this big investigation trying to prove Rapalot was a drug trafficking front. Now, Jay Prince definitely had a hustling past. But he says he was done with all of that by the time he got rap a lot cracking. Still, he knew the DEA wasn't going to let him live it down. So he went on the offense. And see, here's where Jay Prince's reaction is totally different than Master P's. Jay hired his own private investigator, who he says turned up evidence that the DEA agents were corrupt. Jay's claims were vindicated last year when feds caught and convicted one of those DEA agents for corruption. Yeah, Jay Prince... Man, he went after the DEA just like they were going after him. And he was loud as hell about it, especially on record. We didn't bite our tongue when, you know, subject matter such as crooked officers and exposing, you know, different things uh, where they were concerned. We were speaking for our people. Yeah, Rapalot wasn't scared to call him out. Scarface even released a song where he name dropped the DEA agents on tape. Listen up, my niggas. The FBI's been watching you Music. You see the way they do with me, running in my crib, making niggas lie. 
sometimes we become targets for other reasons than what's portrayed. And, uh, you know, it was nothing there because I wasn't doing nothing. It became bigger than me not doing nothing. I think it became a, a target of my mind. So, certain labels were definitely feeling the pressure from law enforcement. But what happens when the people meant to uphold justice end up being the real culprits? This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Yogi T. We know that sometimes finding a moment for yourself isn't so simple, but self-care doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, it can be as simple as brewing yourself a warm, comforting cup of Yogi Honey Lavender Stress Relief Tea. With soothing aromatics like lavender, chamomile, and lemon balm, this relaxing herbal tea blend encourages you to take a moment to pause, step away from the chaos of the day, and sip your way to a more stress-free state of mind. Find your flow with Yogi Tea. Race might be a hot topic right now, but for so many of us, talking about race is nothing new. On the Code Switch podcast from NPR, we go beyond the headlines and we go deep. Listen now. There's this belief that black and brown people inherently distrust the justice system. That we don't want to talk to police. But that's something that many of us have had to learn the hard way. Just look at Max's case. He was read as Miranda rights, but he went ahead and spoke to police without a lawyer anyway, because he trusted the system would believe him. Jamie Wilson went to the police to tell them Mac couldn't have shot Baron Victor Jr., because she trusted the system would believe her. Thomas Williams confessed to shooting Baron Victor Jr. He trusted the system to believe him. Yeah, but the people responsible for convicting Mac, District Attorney Walter Reed, and Sheriff Jack Strain, they abuse that trust for themselves. I don't want to see temporary housing uh, uh, because of Katrina turn into long-term housing for a bunch of thugs and trash that don't need to be in St. Tammany Parish. That's Sheriff Jack Strain in a local TV interview warning New Orleans residents to stay away from St. Tammany shortly after Hurricane Katrina. New Orleans chooses to coddle people in, 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 or criminals in that area that, um, you know, that, that tend to get away with a great deal. We will not call that trash in St. Tammany Parish. If they come to St. Tammany Parish, we're going to pursue them, we're going to arrest them, our prosecutors are going to prosecute them, and our judges are going to convict them. 
Now, uh, you know, I, I don't get into calling people names and all of that fact, but if you're going to walk the streets of St. Tammany Parish with dreadlocks and chiwi hairstyles, then you can expect to be getting a visit from a sheriff's deputy. Chiwi hairstyles. I mean, I've heard of sundown towns back in the Jim Crow era, but getting harassed by police because of your hairstyle? Man, that's a new low. We're going to deal with you one way or the other. Now, when Sheriff Strain went on this racist rant right after Katrina, it got a lot of attention around the country. NPR News even ran a commentary on it, comparing him to the fictional TV sheriff played by Andy Griffith back in the day. But not even a stereotypically sleepy southern town like 1960s Mayberry could compete with the bass awkward ways of St. Tammany's leading lawmen. I mean, this is the same parish that David Duke now calls home. <laughs> yep. And voters in St. Tammany, they kept on voting for Jack Strain, along with the district attorney, Walter Reed. They did it for decades. That's because together, the two ran on a tough-on-crime platform, and voters were sold on their message. They were practically untouchable. And at the time, St. Tammany, it was known for consistently locking up more people than any other parish in Louisiana, which for years was the state with the highest incarceration rate in America, the nation with the highest incarceration rate. So yeah, St. Tammany Parish, they were number one in the world. And D.A. Walter Reed, he even embraced the parish's nickname, St. Slamony. He and the sheriff were among the most powerful public officials in St. Tammany. They ruled it with an iron fist. Remember, we found evidence that the sheriff's office pressured witnesses to implicate Mac in the shooting that night at Club Mercedes. And the DA? He orchestrated the prosecution that used Mac's persona and lyrics against him. And a lot of people we spoke to for this story, they say they're still scared to speak out. But Walter and Jack, they finally tried those strong-arm tactics on somebody with the power to fight back. It really became a this good old boy network versus my good old boy network. That's self-proclaimed good old boy, Terry King. He works as an auditor for a Christian finance company. And what he exposed about Walter and Jack is directly related to Mac's case. But peep this. It's about to be a wild ride. So y'all hold on. Terry and Walter Reed had bad blood. It all began when Terry and his wife went public with ethics complaints about her boss, St. Tammany's coroner, who just happened to be a political ally of Walter's. When I took down the coroner, I knew that the sheriff and the district attorney were going to continue to come after me until they could put me in jail because I was a wild card. Now, Terry, he had a hunch that Walter and Jack were cooking the books, and he was determined to find out how. So he started auditing their finances using public record requests. But he also started hearing about how they were violating people's civil rights. So he set up meetings with activists in the black community. And he fed those complaints about Walter and Jack's potential crimes to an FBI agent named Mike Anderson. So everybody's going around the table talking about, oh, I'd been beaten by the cops on the side of the road when they, you know, because they thought I was somebody else. I mean, it's just crazy stories. Well, one lady who was there said, well, I work for Citizens Bank and Jack Strain have safe deposit boxes on the bottom of the stack, the big ones that are you know, full of cash. And so I, I lean over and tell uh, Mike Anderson, I said, look, I said, is it legal to have that amount of cash in, in a safe deposit box? 
I said, I didn't think you could really do that. And he goes, well, he said, this just got much more interesting. The question was, where was that cash coming from? Now, Terry started to hear about a work release program operating out of the parish jail. Work release, of course, is intended to give prisoners a chance to start earning a wage before they're officially released. The jail can take a percentage of the pay to administer the program, you know, for overhead. But here's the catch. St. Tammany Jail? Man, they were taking around two-thirds of the inmates' pay. I'm realizing they're bringing in about $3 million a year, and they're able to keep this. Whew. Here's how it worked. Jack and two of his deputies created a private company to run the work release program. What was really going on was all this cash that was coming in. They were giving the sheriff personally a whole bunch of the cash, the majority of the cash. Then they were also having to pay the sheriff's office about $400,000 a year. And then they would keep the remainder of it. Man, that's some new Jim Crow 2.0 like a mug. I know, right? And according to the federal indictment, Jack and his deputies used the money they stole for family vacations, hunting trips, jewelry, even a new truck. And I mean, that was literally a slave operation. Just last year, the sheriff was federally indicted on 16 counts for the work release fraud. But before that case could even go to trial, man, this story took a whole nother dark and twisted turn. Today, a St. Tammany Parish grand jury indicted Jack Strain on two counts of aggravated rape, two counts of aggravated incest, one count of indecent behavior with a juvenile, and a count of sexual battery. The charges are shocking for many, and indications are this is just the beginning. Four victims have been identified in that case, and Jack Strain is awaiting trial on those charges and the federal case on the worker release scam. He's pled not guilty in both cases. Jack Strain declined to comment for our story. As for Walter Reed, the feds eventually indicted him on 18 counts of campaign finance and insurance fraud. He was convicted in 2016 and sentenced to four years behind bars, but he was recently put on home confinement due to COVID-19. Now, Through his lawyer, Walter Reed wrote that his conviction had nothing to do with bribery or irregularities as to the administration of cases processed by he or anyone in his office. He also wrote that Mac's case was 20 years ago, and he has no independent recollection of the case. But he is, quote, not aware of any improprieties. Looking back on everything he knows now, Terry says targeting Mac would have been part of the DA and Sheriff's MO. He, he would probably have used that, to, and it's probably more for strain. But to say, yeah, you know, you've got these uh, gangster rap people coming up here making all these lyrics about how they're going to hurt people and things. We're just not going to put up with that in St. Tammany Parish. That absolutely would be something that you would hear up there. And pressuring witnesses with obstruction charges? Terry says that's straight out the playbook. So what Walter Reed and his henchmen would do, if they wanted you to testify a certain way, they'd go to you and say, look, we need you to say this. And if you don't, we're going to charge you with uh, obstruction of justice or, you know, find some charge, a drug charge or whatever. And we're going to put a felony on you and you're going to go to prison for five years or in some cases, 15 years or just testify the way we want you to and nothing will happen. But see, Terry, he admits that he never thought about people in Mac's position before all this went down. 
He went from the type of person who would have likely voted for Walter and Jack to somebody who has a whole new perspective on the system. I never thought anything about mass incarceration because, you know, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not going to prison. I knew I wasn't going to prison. And I didn't know anybody who was really in prison. And I said, but when I got frivolous criminal charges filed, filed against me, all of a sudden mass incarceration became something that was at the front of my mind. In 2015, documentary filmmaker Michael Shaheen, he asked Mac about Walter Reed and Jack Strain. There is some karma going on. I mean, the, the DA got indicted. It's From what I hear, it's a matter of time before the sheriff gets indicted. And, um, you know, I mean, how does that make you feel? Things, things are not always what they seem. And uh, I'm living proof of that, so I try to... I try to give everybody the same benefit of the doubt that I want. But there's also a part of me that feels this is just too because this is what you've done to me. So the men who ran St. Tammany with a tough-on-crime approach and were responsible for sending Mac and so many others away, they went down themselves. How's that for karma? Yeah, and it even seemed like there was an opportunity for some movement on Mac's case. After Walter Reed went to prison, the new DA... He promised a review of all of Walter's former cases, including Max, for misconduct. But crime reporter David Lohr, who walked us through Max's case, man, he says that was a joke from the get-go. You know, obviously these, these people are, uh, were crooked individuals, and now we're supposed to trust that every prosecution or arrest they've ever made uh, was in good faith. I, I mean, it's ridiculous. The new DA eventually did appoint somebody to look into Max's case. Well, well, guess who he assigned to it? He assigned Bruce Deering, the guy who had prosecuted Mac in the courtroom. The same guy who sold the jury on Mac being an assassin. Doing it doesn't even make sense. Uh, so, I mean, the, the whole thing was just uh, a pony show. It was a joke. But earlier this year, Mac got a new glimmer of hope. And it came after a ruling from the United States Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court decided this morning that non-unanimous juries violate a person's constitutional rights and must end. Today, among the laws is now being required to come up with unanimous jury verdicts. Louisiana and Oregon were the only remaining states that allowed convictions based on a majority vote. Louisiana's law. Remember, even though Mac's case was decided by 12 jurors, only 10 of them found Mac guilty. But in Louisiana in 2001, that was enough. The requirement of unanimous juries stems back hundreds of years. It, it predates even um, the founding of the United States. That's Stanton Jones. I'm an attorney and a partner in the Supreme Court and Appellate Practice Group at Arnold and Porter. And for the purposes of our story, he's Mac's current lawyer. See, the right to a jury trial is one of those bedrock American principles— but for more than a century, Louisiana had a law on the books that specifically allowed a person to be convicted by a jury that was non-unanimous. Why? An equally timeless American principle. Racism. It happened during Reconstruction, when Black people were first allowed on juries. Then in 1898, Louisiana held a constitutional convention. And the, the specific, explicit purpose of that convention was to, quote, establish the supremacy of the white race. Those are the words of the people who wrote the Louisiana law. And the specific 
um, allowance for non-unanimous jury convictions was very deliberately designed to eliminate the influence and power of black jurors. Yeah, white Louisianans, they knew that any given jury was unlikely to have more than two black jurors on it at a time. And so by this Louisiana constitutional provision allowing convictions on a 10-2 vote, it basically meant that you could just convince the 10 white jurors and it didn't matter if the two black jurors voted to acquit. But here's the thing. That ruling is not automatically retroactive for old cases like Max. Even still, Stanton thinks there's reason to be hopeful. See, in a majority opinion in this case, Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch, he actually wrote that sometimes judges make mistakes. That's what's allowed this non-unanimous jury rule to stand for so long. But he also wrote, quote, it is something else entirely to perpetuate something we all know to be wrong only because we fear the consequences of being right. And what he's speaking to there is the fact that the court, by rejecting non-unanimous juries, might mean that some other people's convictions have to be thrown out. That's the consequence of being right about the Sixth Amendment unanimous jury requirement. Um, and so, so that's what Max's case is about. Max's case is about the consequence of the U.S. Supreme Court getting this issue right. And that's what Stanton's betting on. Based on this ruling, he's set to file a petition in Louisiana State Court to throw out Max's conviction. It's, it's illegal, it's unfair, um, and it stems from these overtly racist systems that were put in place uh, over 100 years ago. And um, so we'll be asking the Louisiana state courts without delay to finally do justice in Max's case. For Max's part, he's been disappointed too many times. He's talked in past interviews about not getting his hopes up. You know, I've been hearing, you know, all of these, all of these things are good. Don't get, it wrong, don't, get, don't get me wrong, don't get it twisted. All of these things are good, but I guess I'm at the point now where until I see movement in my case, it's like, okay, all that stuff sounds good, but I need to see something. I need some proof of something actually happening. While this Supreme Court ruling could potentially work in Max's favor, the same court still isn't quite ready to take on rap as a free speech issue when it comes to criminal cases. Yeah. In 2019, Stanton represented Pittsburgh rapper Mayhem Mall, who asked the court to take up his case, saying he'd been sent to prison for a song that should have been protected under the First Amendment. The, the reality is that for a lot of these lyrics, whether you consider the artist authentic or, or, or not, the lyrics are not literal. So one of the lines, an actual line in the song was something like, I'm going to stab him in his feet. And the reason he said feet is because he needed a word that rhymed with street. <laughs> okay. And that, and that person was criminally prosecuted and convicted and served prison time on the theory that that was a real threat against a police officer to stab him in his feet on the street. Killer Mike, 21 Savage, Chance the Rapper, and more 
co-signed his argument with a supporting brief. But the Supreme Court never actually took up Mayhem Mall's case. Even still, that hadn't stopped hip-hop from pushing back. Take the case of L.A. rapper Draco the Ruler. Now, he continues to sit in jail for a 2019 murder case, but on a project that he recorded and released from jail this summer, he does a rare thing in rap by breaking character to speak directly to the absurdity of prosecutors using his lyrics against him on the song Fictional. Might sound real, but it's fictional. I love them imagination gets to you. I'm a real nigga and you fictional. I can never ever let a fuck this get to me. You fictional. It's fictional. You fictional. For Mac, not even 20 years in prison has dampened his creative spirit. It's that same spirit that keeps people fighting to bring him home. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation, creating greater freedom for changemakers to create a truly representative economy. Marguerite Casey Foundation believes working people and their families should have the power to shape our institutions, our democracy, and our economy. Shifting power, powering freedom. Learn more about the foundation at www.caseygrants.org and connect with the foundation on Twitter at Casey Grants and on Facebook. The past is never past, and every headline has a history. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Each week, we go back in time to better understand the present. Bringing lesser-known stories and perspectives to the surface. Subscribe and listen to Throughline from NPR. Everybody that knows Mac says the same thing. He's made the most of his time despite being in prison. He's never been written up for any kind of infraction. He's been a mentor to other prisoners. He even runs a music program and plays keyboards for several prison bands. And in 2014, after more than a decade inside, Mac was introduced to a family friend on the outside named Angelique. First impressions, it was just like, wow, this guy is really, really smart. He's a thinker. He's so creative. It was a little bit like... Not meeting someone for the first time, but having them, like, walk back into your life. Mac and Angelique hit it off. Pretty soon, they were a serious couple. She says it's not easy, but she thinks of it as a long-distance relationship. The months became years, and the two of them, they started discussing marriage. Then, a few years ago, an old friend was transferred to the same prison as Mac. Someone qualified to be his best man. Someone who could help with the planning and be there for Mac on one of the biggest days of his life. It was his best friend from the No Limit era, Corey Miller, better known as C-Murder, Master P's baby bro. I would call them like the fire and ice combo. C is the hot-headed one. McKinley's always the calm one. Together, Mac and C did their best to turn a small prison courtyard into a wedding venue, flowers and all. D1 was there too, along with Mac's parents. You know, we, we made the best of it. Like, you, you look at some of our wedding pictures, you would not know that that's where that was. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's it, it definitely was kind of a, a hard decision. As a little girl, you always dream of, like, this fancy, beautiful wedding. But I kind of looked at it as, you know, I'm, I'm with the, the person I'm supposed to be with, regardless of what the situation is. At the end of the day, those things fade away. Since they met, Angelique has been with Mac through every twist and turn in his case. In 2016, when Mac was recommended for clemency, it looked like maybe he'd come home. But despite his perfect record as an inmate, it was denied. 
The committee ruled he hadn't served enough time, and at that point, he had already been in there for 16 years. A year ago, Mac was granted another clemency hearing, and they're still waiting for the date to be set. I also have a good understanding of the money that's made on each inmate every single day that they sit behind bars. He's valuable in a whole lot of ways as far as just day by day what the state gets paid or what the prisons get paid. Um, You know, he's valuable as a a mediator, as a mentor, as kind of a 14 cents an hour um, employee for whatever you need him to do. He's very valuable to keep around. Angelique says Matt keeps his spirits up through all this. But she's had a harder time. I guess the hardest thing is just all of just, I I guess, just feeling the disappointment um, and anger, you know, just being honest and anger um, for that being somebody that you love so much. I've heard people say this before, but it's really true. Is when someone is locked up in prison, it seems like the whole family is locked up, you know. All of us will never feel free until till he's out, until that person is out of prison, especially someone that's, that's in there for a crime he didn't commit, you know. We're in the art studio of Sheila Phipps, Mac's mom. It's full of portraits that she's painted over the years. When we got there, she invited us to sit down and talk. You want anything to drink? We got some beer. Okay. <laughs> Since Max's been away, she's used art to cope with his absence. After one of Max's appeals was denied, she started by painting a portrait of her son to help tell his story. Everything else and all this back here, all this stuff is mine. It's my work. And actually, the Max portrait. The Max portrait. Are you probably seen it online? But then she thought to herself, why just stop it, Max? Through her son, she started corresponding with a lot of other men were sitting in prison for crimes they claimed they didn't commit. So she started painting portraits of them, too. I remember before this happened to my son, every time I see a young man, um, especially a young black man, being arrested on television, you know, and um, I always would think, yeah, they did it. I don't know that person. I don't know what kind of background is, but, you know, the way the media portrayed him, he had to have done it. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of young men, and I know that people as there's criminals out there, but there are a lot of young people who get arrested for crimes they didn't commit. Now I, now I can see it differently. I don't see it the same way anymore. You know, it, it changed my perspective altogether about the justice system altogether. Sheila says Mac has found ways to change his perspective too in order to keep himself going. He thinks like he's already out or he's, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I can't explain it, but Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? He don't think about being confided in prison. He think about, you know, always in mind, always dreaming about what he's going to do and where he's going to go and what he's going to continue doing. And I I think that helps him a whole lot. I imagine, like, after so many years, uh, just to be able to cope, um, you've had to shut off a part of your emotions. Like, is, is that is that the case? Or, like, how have you, 
how have you been able to go through this without like just totally losing it? Um. Well, I usually turn off emotions in the public. <laughs> you know, I have my moments by myself. Or, you know, my husband and I. It's you know, it's not like I'm totally numb to it. When these get-togethers and birthdays and holidays, you know, I have my moments. Um, I get teary-eyed. I, I might cry about it because he should be here, you know. And I pray to God about it, you know. And I try to stay strong for my kids and my husband and for Mac. Because if he knew that I was upset, Lord, he would just—he uh, he wouldn't want. He just—he's so sensitive. He don't want me to be upset. I just pray that that this all would be over with, and Mac would be able to see his family again. You know. Do you allow yourself uh, to think much about what it'll feel like to see him walk out of those prison gates someday? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm I know I'm gonna be ecstatic. Oh yeah. I'm already knowing. I'm Oh Lord, yes indeed. I'll be so happy. I'll be so happy. You know. I already know. I'm probably gonna just you know, hang out with him for the for at least twenty four hours. We got to hang out somewhere together, you know. Just me, him, and his dad, and just hanging out, just talking and running it. My mom, he gonna probably want to do that anyway, cause believe it or not, he's a big baby, you know, cause he's the oldest. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> I have a song called um, "Favorite Girl," and the first verse says, "Thank you for giving me rest. Thank you for telling pops yes." For always being the best Mama, I could have asked for I couldn't have asked for Sheila Ann met a Vietnam veteran A weird cat They still got together And it wasn't all grand But in God's hands Anything is possible Even through obstacle With not a lot of dope She made me remove Like nothing that I've ever seen My ebony queen Do you remember when you first heard me rhyme? I hesitated Because I was sure you would hate it But to my surprise And every mama should she said, Lil McKinley, that sounded so good. You were always my number one fan, and I'm always your number one man. Even Pops understand. You're my favorite girl, favorite girl, favorite girl, favorite girl. And that's kind of how I describe my mom. My mom always, uh, she always encouraged me and always uh, told me to follow my dreams. And one of Mac's longtime supporters continues to be amazed by Mac's selflessness. Here's D1. That's just who he is. And it's just cool to see that prison has not, not only prison, but a wrongful conviction, which lands you in prison for over 20 years, has not changed that about his character. Well, speaking of selflessness, I want to read you this message that that Mac sent us. And I just want to read it to you and get your reaction on it. Okay. He says, make no mistake about it, there's but one true victim in this tragedy, and that is Baron Victor Jr. While Louisiana's criminal justice system did indeed fail me, I failed this young man and his family. 
It was my failure to adequately provide a safe environment for the patrons of this event that ultimately led to his death. I can only hope that Barron's family will someday forgive me as I've forgiven those who wrongfully accused me of killing him. Bro, that's so powerful. That's so powerful. That I got goosebumps, bro, just sitting here listening to that, man. He's taking ownership and taking responsibility for the, the environment that his music helped to create that particular night in, in that nightclub. But in the same breath, he's also uh, reaffirming his innocence in terms of not being the person who pulled the trigger. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want anyone to mistake Mac's admission in that note that he wrote you all for an admission of some punishable crime, you know, that, that should land him in prison. The selflessness that, that he speaks of is referring to Baron Victor as the victim in, in this incident. And, and he was a victim in this incident, but Mac is definitely a victim as well. The people who metaphorically pulled the trigger on, on getting Mac convicted and locked up, those are, those are the perpetrators in, in this crime against McKinley Phipps. Who pays for that? You know, who, who, um, who gets, you know, who gets reprimanded for that? And when D said that Mac tried to outsmart the devil back in the day, he was talking about the music industry. But there's a lot of people in this story who had to outsmart the devil to survive. Terry King did it his way. Master P and Jay Prince, they did it their own ways. And for Mac in 2020, outsmarting the devil could look a lot like justice. Me being let out of here would be justice for me. You know, just me just being out of here and being able to uh, live my life again, to be outside these walls and not be bound by the, uh, the limitations of this place. That would be justice for me. Mac is still fighting for early release, but even if he doesn't get it, he's got a strong chance of getting out on good behavior in four years. Yeah, and here's the thing. Mac, man, he still got something to say. Hip-hop, it ain't just a young boy's game no more. I mean, at age 43, Mac, he's actually four years younger than Nas, who just put out his 12th studio album. There's a lot of rappers who thrive post-prison in this day and age. The game has changed, but this time, it could finally work in Mac's favor. Of course it has changed. Of course it has changed, and, and that's inevitable. Everything in life changed. The good thing you is... You have one minute left. You know, the good thing is my music is a reflection of those changes. And I don't, you know, expect to come out here to an a, a easy road. No, it's a, it's a road ahead. But I do believe that there are several people across the country who can wait to hear what it is that has been... <laughs> Falling over in my mind, and I think that there are way more than enough to uh, to support the music that I'm going to do, and I'm just ready. I'm ready to do it for them, and I'm ready to do it for myself. Next time on Louder Than a Riot, we take you inside the mixtape raid that changed the culture of rap forever if they can lock up drama nobody's safe this shit's done it's over it's a wrap 
This episode was written by Matt Ozug, Dustin DeSoto, Rodney Carmichael, and me, Sydney Madden. Michael May edited this one. It was produced by Dustin DeSoto, Adelina Lancianese, and Matt Ozug. With help from Michael May and Sam Leeds. Josh Newell is our engineer. Senior supervising producers are Rachel Neal and Nigel Eaton. I hope they let me go tonight. And shout out to the bigwigs, Steve Nelson, Lauren Anki, and Anya Grunman. Original music by Casa Overall. Additional scoring by Ramteen Ara Bluey. Appreciate you, folk. Our digital editor is Jacob Gans. Our fact-checkers are Jane Gilvin and Nicolette Kahn. Thanks to everybody who lent their time and expertise to Mac's story, especially the Phipps family, David Lohr, Michael Shaheen, plus Michelle Martin and all our friends at Weekend All Things Considered. I pray that you can sleep tonight. Hit us up on Twitter. We're at Louder Than a Riot. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to follow along with the music you heard throughout this episode, check out the Louder Than a Riot playlist on Apple Music and Spotify now. And if you want to email us, it's louder at npr.org. This has been Louder Than a Riot from NPR Music. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Listen to The Last Ride, the podcast investigating the disappearances of two men last seen with the same Florida sheriff's deputy. Join us for a new episode, a conversation with Marcia Williams before the 20th anniversary of her son's disappearance. It's okay for you to tell my story. If you don't know who you may be talking to, that could put their finger right there. Listen to The Last Ride, part of the NPR Network, coming March 13th.